may be seated. Good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. If you are new or you're visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the, I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. And it is good to be with you here this morning to, to worship a God who, as we just sang, right, who knows the ending from the beginning, who has all things worked out, who knows, has good plans, who will keep his promises, and has all things worked out. We also acknowledge that for some of you walking in this morning, it's harder to trust, harder to see how God is going to work in your current circumstance for good. We want to be here to encourage you to pray with you as you walk through hardships and trials and to point each other to a God who is good and has good plans even in the midst of hard time. If you are new or you're visiting with us at, at the church here at Three Lakes, Evangelical Free Church, our desire, our hope is to reach people with the gospel, to grow, to be like Christ, and to serve others. And just, those are the things we want to be about. We want to be about advancing the gospel in our community. We want to be about growing to know Christ better ourselves. We want to be about serving others. If you are new again, um, and there's anything you want to communicate with the church, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. You can write any information you like to share on that card, and you can drop it in the wooden offering boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where you can place any offerings like to give to what we're doing here as a church. A couple of announcements to, to bring to your attention. One is that at the church, we want to you know, update and make sure our directory is accurate both with the, the information that's in there and with pictures. And so following the service today and next week, and then on June 11th, Bob Coach will be downstairs outside the main entry doors on the lower level taking pictures to update our directory. And also there will be a copy of our current directory there with information that you can check to make sure your information is, is accurate. So we would invite you to do that. You don't have to be a member. If you consider it anyway, this church, your church home, we'd invite you to be part of that directory. Also coming up, this coming weekend is our big rummage sale fundraiser, and so we kind of start preparations for that today. And so to talk more about that, I'm going to invite Melissa Warner to come up and share with us. This is the last Sunday you're going to have to listen to me, so... Um, hopefully, hopefully we're all on the same track. Um, Bob was looking for a scripture that supported rummage sales, and he couldn't find it. But he did want us all to remember that he who dies with the most does not win. <laughs> so here are some of the categories that we have that are going to hopefully jog your mind and help you think about what you may have at home that you're no longer using that would bless someone else. Look at these kids. Um, <laughs> So we are setting up, we're removing all these chairs after church today, and we will need some helpers. I think it'll go really fast. And then we'll be setting up tables up here and downstairs. And then from 9 to 12 and 1 to 4, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we will have people here to meet you, to unload your things. If you need a pickup, please let me know. My number is in the bulletin. And uh, I would encourage you, if you have a large, I've had a few people say, I have a storage unit full, or... Um, I have 
a, a trailer full that I'm going to drop off. Can you let me know ahead of time? Can you give me a heads up? <laughs> so I can make sure that I am here and that we can place everything in the right place. So these are our categories. Some of you have volunteered already. I really appreciate that. If you have a few minutes this week and you can help in any way, please let me know. Um, I have some extra posters. <laughs> Uh, if you want to see me, if you um, work somewhere or frequent somewhere where we could uh, post those, that would be really helpful to me as well. So here we go. Please invite somebody into our church so they can see what we're all about, so that they can come and worship with us next Sunday. Thank you so much. We are very excited about that, like Rochdale, both in terms of how the, the funds will benefit the church, but also in terms of the, the relational and the community impact it can have. And so we just invite you to be a part of it in any, whatever way you're able. We'd invite you and encourage you to be a part of helping with that, shopping at it, all those things, right? um, donating to it, all of the above. A um, couple of other announcements. So coming up in a couple of weeks on June 4th, we'll have our annual congregational meeting at the church, so we'd invite you to be a part of that as we share kind of what we hope to see for our church going forward. Part of that meeting will also vote on um, leadership positions. The names of those nominated are in your bulletin, so we'd encourage you to look at that um, and then just make it a priority to be at that meeting on June 4th. But it's good to be with you here this morning again as we continue in worship. Would you join me in a time of prayer? Father, we thank you for this time to be together as your people, to come together, to sing, to pray together, to fellowship together, to hear from your word. Father, I thank you for the way you've worked in each person's life that gathered here to bring them this moment to this place to be together as your people. Father, as we worship you this morning, would we do so out of a heart that is blown away by your mercy and by your grace toward us? we worship, as we sing, would we do so just in awe of your goodness and your love for us. Father, you are mighty, you are powerful, you are amazing. The fact that you can work in even our hardest circumstances to bring about your good purposes, that you can keep your promises even when things seem bleak and challenging. 
created that is true. That you love us, that you care for us, that you desire good for us. Father, for those who walk in here this morning with heavy heart, with busy minds, with trials of various kinds pulling at them, I pray that you would make them keenly aware of your presence with them here this morning, that they would be comforted by your spirit and by the presence of their brothers and sisters around them. Father, I pray that as we sing, as we fellowship, as we hear your word, that all of it, all that takes place here, is served to bring you glory. As we set up for a rummage sale, as we spend time together, would it all serve to exalt Christ, to make your name great? And would it serve to conform us into the image of Jesus. Would we leave here closer to you and more like Christ when we walked in this morning? And would our Christ-likeness serve to move us to advance the gospel in this community and in the lives of the people around us would we be people who serve others well would we be people who share the gospel people come to know Jesus and have their sins forgiven because we would be people who go out and share the gospel with others We do that not in order to check a box, but out of a deep, abiding love for you and all that you've done for us on the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, we do desperately need you every breath is because of you, every beat of our heart is because of you. We need you for all the good things in this life. And yet, Father, I confess that there are many hours when I think I have things under control myself. I think I can do it on my own. So, Father, this morning, would you remind us, would you reveal to us how desperately we need you, that we cannot do this life apart from you. Father, would we see our need for you? And we marvel at how in your graciousness and your goodness you meet all our needs in Christ. Grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's sometimes kind of striking to me how how the same circumstances can produce like vastly different reactions in different people. Same circumstance, two people can react in totally different ways. It may not surprise those of you who know me to learn that like I'm pretty introverted. Like, like I'm not just like a little bit introverted, but like very introverted. Like, in fact, when I was in seminary, I went to seminary and I debated for quite a long time whether I wanted to be a pastor or whether I should go, like, get more education and go be, like, a, a teacher at a Bible college or teach at the seminary level. And the reason it's such a debate is that, like, I felt like God was calling me towards pastoral ministry. But when I thought about all the pastors that I knew or had seen or thought about, like, they all seemed to be, like, just these gregarious extroverts. And I wondered, right, if I could fulfill the role as pastor without being that kind of person. Now, obviously, since I stand here this morning, God worked in a variety of ways to, to show me and remind me that he could use me in pastoral ministry despite my introversion. There are times when I still need to remind, that I'm, that I'm still reminded that like, I'm the exception to the rule. Like, there's way more extroverts in pastoral ministry than there are introverts. I'm often reminded that of when I go to conferences. I love conferences because I love like, the teaching they offer, and I love the chance to see and connect with my friends who are also in pastoral ministry. But at these conferences, often like over the lunch hour, the organizers allow this intentional time for the attendees to to spend time getting to know people who they haven't previously met, right? to, to connect, to network, whatever you want to call it. And like those gregarious, extroverted pastors, they love that time. Right? And I just want to die. Right? Like, like, I want to take my lunch and go find a corner somewhere and just like huddle up until the next teaching session. The same situation, the same circumstance, that networking time produces vastly different reaction in me versus some of these more outgoing pastors. This idea kind of expressed concisely in, in this picture. 
Like the extrovert says, I'm staying in tonight, and they're all sad about it. Or the introvert says, I'm staying in tonight, and it's good news. The same situation produces vastly different reactions. And here's why I share all that, right? That what we value and what we most deeply desire will determine how we react to life circumstances. If we value quiet and alone time, then staying in will be great. If we value interacting with others and energy, then like staying in will be miserable. What we value, what we desire most deeply will determine how we react to life's circumstances. We see a vivid picture of that this morning in, in our passage in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 12 this morning and read through verse 18. The passage is in your bulletin, or you can follow along on the screen. Paul writes this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, that it's become clear throughout the whole palace, guarded to everyone else, that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And that last sentence, because of this, I rejoice. On the surface, like it's kind of hard to believe. Like given Paul's circumstances, how can he be rejoicing? In fact, Paul talks about rejoicing all throughout this letter. He uses the verb to rejoice nine times in this book. That's more than any other letter he writes. The book of Philippians has the highest concentration of the word rejoice of any book in the Bible. When you think about Paul's circumstances, it kind of doesn't make sense. Paul, the author of this letter, he finds himself facing a couple of circumstances that most people would find miserable. First, he's in prison, which, generally speaking, not a joyful experience. And second, he has rivals who are intentionally stirring up trouble for him. They're gloating that Paul's in jail and they're, 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 they want to cause him trouble. And so most people, certainly myself, when they're faced with those kind of circumstances, would find, them feeling, would find themselves feeling downcast and, and saying, woe is me. That's not really how I'd feel. I'm in prison. Others are maligning my name and mocking me from outside of prison. Like, why me, God? But not Paul. Instead, he's rejoicing in his circumstances. And the question is, why? Like, how can Paul be 
rejoicing? And the answer is in what we said earlier. What we value, what we desire most deeply will determine how we react to life's circumstances. If Paul's deepest desire, what he valued most was his own personal comfort and security, then prison wouldn't produce rejoicing. If Paul's deepest desire was his reputation or his own popularity or his own honor, then, then having rivals throughout trouble for him would not produce rejoicing. If Paul's deepest desire was his own personal happiness, right, which is often what I find myself desiring most, right, but if that were Paul's deepest desire, he would be miserable rather than rejoicing. But none of those things, happiness or reputation or comfort, or none of those things are what Paul values most deeply. What is Paul's deepest desire? What we see throughout this passage and throughout this whole book is that Paul's deepest desire is to exalt Christ and to advance his gospel. He makes it clear in verse 18. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. The important thing, he says, is that Christ is preached. That Christ is made known. That the gospel is proclaimed. That's the important thing. Likewise, in verse 21, which we'll look at more closely next week, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For Paul... Living, it's all about being fully dedicated to Christ. Not himself, not his own happiness, not his own status, but to live is about Christ. Therefore, the lens through which Paul judges whether he should be mournful or whether he should be rejoicing is not whether he's comfortable or popular or wealthy or respected or safe or powerful or successful. For Paul, the lens through which he judges whether to be mournful or to rejoice is is Christ being exalted and it's the gospel being preached. That's Paul's deepest desire. That Christ is exalted and the gospel is preached. And if those things are happening, Paul will rejoice no matter the other circumstances. Paul's deepest desire Christ is exalted and the gospel is advanced. And those desires determine how he reacts to any situation or circumstance he finds himself in. If that's true, which I think it is, then the question for each of us is, what do I value and desire most deeply? Because how you answer that question will determine how you react to life's trials and life's hardships. When you examine your heart, what do you find you value and desire most? What is most precious to you? Is it your health? Is it financial security? Is it popularity? Is it prestige? Is it power and influence? Is it your freedom? 
romantic satisfaction, that your reputation, that having fun, that material possessions, that, that your family and their well-being, all those things by themselves can be good. But when we elevate them to the status of our ultimate desire, they become idols. We stop, when they become idols, we stop seeing our circumstances through the proper lens. I'm going to read a quote from Tim Keller here, but I just want to acknowledge that the time, to the time I wrote this and the time now, he, Tim Keller passed away this week. And like, for me, it was surprisingly sad. Right? Like among people I've never met, there's probably no one more responsible for me standing here this morning than Tim Keller. And so I just want to acknowledge that this morning. But he writes this about idols. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And so often, the circumstances in life that drive us to despair do so because they threaten our idols. When our health and physical well-being is the thing we desire most, then a serious illness or an injury is devastating to our soul. When financial security is what we value most, then losing a job makes life feel, in the words of Keller, like hardly worth living. When having a good reputation is what you desire most, then being falsely accused or talked about behind your back is reason for despair. But when, like Paul, your deepest desire is Christ and the advancement of his gospel, then all those things can be endured if they serve to exalt Jesus and spread the gospel. So again, I just ask, what do you value most deeply? What do you desire most deeply? Is it Christ? Or is it something else? The answer to that question frames and shapes how you react to all that life will throw at you. Later in the same letter, in chapter 3, Paul will say, I want to know Christ. That's his desire. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and, the, and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Paul's great desire is to know Christ. Even if it means suffering like Christ. Even if it means becoming like him in death. Paul wants to know Christ above all else. Same thing true for you. You want to know Christ no matter the cost, no matter what it may mean. Is that your deepest desire? Or do other values, other desires fight to supersede Christ in your heart? 
if you hear that and you say, like, man, I, I know that my greatest desire is not to know Christ. My goal in saying that and saying this is not to, to make you feel guilty. Me standing up here and saying, if you want to be a good Christian, you need to force yourself to see Christ as more glorious. That achieves nothing. You can't will your way into seeing Christ as valuable. But what I can do is invite you to, to spend more time with Jesus. Spend time with Him by reading His Word Seeing how he reveals himself through the word of the Bible. Spend time with Jesus in, in prayer. Spend time getting to know Jesus by, by reading good books or listening to good music or good sermons. Spend time getting to know Jesus. I'm convinced of this. The more you know Jesus, not some caricature of him that's portrayed in the culture, right? but the more you know Jesus, that he reveals himself as he really is, the more you will unavoidably want to know him more and make him known to others. No one will need to convince you that your deepest desire should be to know Christ and make him known. You will know it for yourself in the depth of your soul. If you get to know the real Jesus, then you will, like Paul, understand and see that to live is Christ. That nothing else matters than knowing Him and exalting Him and advancing His gospel. When that happens, when knowing Christ and making Him known is the most important thing in your life, it radically reshapes how we view our, view our trials and our hardships and, and different circumstances. Which is what Paul is experiencing in this letter. Right? We already saw that Paul faced two circumstances, two trials, that for many of us would be reason for despair. He's in prison, and his opponents are trying to cause him trouble. But each circumstance, as unpleasant as they may be for Paul personally, are serving to exalt Christ and advance the gospel. And so instead of feeling despair, Paul rejoices. Let's see that more clearly. I want to look at each one of these circumstances in turn, starting with Paul's imprisonment. The very first thing Paul says in this passage, that, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And when Paul says, what has happened to me, he's referring to his imprisonment. But he says that his imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel. What he's saying is, like, it may seem like a bad thing I'm in prison, but actually it's good because it has served to advance the gospel. My deepest desire is that the gospel advances, and my imprisonment is making that happen. So it's a good thing that I'm in prison. 
I can rejoice in this. He goes on to give two ways, right? That his imprisonment then serves to advance the gospel. First, he says, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So Paul is saying, he's taken every opportunity to tell his guards and to tell other people he comes in contact with about Jesus. He's in prison for sharing the gospel, yet he's doing it still to his prison guard. He doesn't let his imprisonment stop him. He continues to share the gospel. So because he can share the gospel with the guards, the gospel is advancing. The second way that his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel is in the next verse. He says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul, being in jail, had caused his fellow Christians to become confident and to proclaim the gospel without fear. And intuitively, to me, that kind of feels backwards. It seems like Paul proclaiming the gospel without consequence would be more likely to give confidence to others. But Paul said that it's being put in jail for sharing the gospel that gave others confidence. Persecution against Christianity has served to embolden the believers in Paul's day to to share the gospel and grow the church. Seeing Paul in prison has given them boldness and confidence and they've gone out and proclaimed the gospel. And it's counterintuitive if that seems the same thing still holds true today. On the screen in just a moment, you're going to see what I think is genuinely one of the more interesting graphs I've ever seen. The graph that was part of a, an article in the journal Sociology of Religion. The article is titled, Paradoxes of Pluralism, Privilege, and Persecution. Explaining Christian growth and decline worldwide, which is a fancy-sounding way of saying Christian growth often doesn't happen the way you would expect. So here's the graph. Let me explain what you're seeing here a little bit. Every red dot on that graph represents a different country. And the further right on the graph the country is, the more points it scored on a 52-point scale of Christian privilege in that country. To put it another way, the the further right you are on the graph, the more government support Christianity has in your country. And then on the y-axis, going up and down, the higher up a dot is, the faster Christianity is growing in the country by percentage. And that red line, then, is the overall trend line of all this data. And what that line shows us, right, that gen, generally speaking, the, most, the more Christian privilege that a country has, the slower Christianity is growing in that country, or it's even shrinking in many cases. The more government support Christianity has, the slower the church is growing in different countries. And from this data, 
the researchers conclude this. In our statistical analysis of a global sample of 166 countries from 2010 to 2020, we find that the most important determinant of Christian vitality is the extent to which governments give official support to Christianity through their laws and policies. However, it is not the way developed believers might expect. At government support for Christianity increases, the number of Christians declines significantly. We can talk about the reason for this. If you want to come after the service at 1045, we'll be in here for answer questions with the sermon. I'd love to talk more about why this may be. I don't have time to go into it now. But the more government support Christianity has, the slower the church grows, or in many cases, it's even shrinking. A couple of examples of this. According to Open Doors, which is an organization dedicated to the persecuted church, in 2021, Afghanistan was the second hardest country in the world to be a Christian. Iran was the eighth hardest world in the country to be a Christian. Both of those countries ban and persecute conversion from Islam. They imprison those who proselytize. And they arrest those who, under, who attend underground churches. It's hard to be a Christian in both of those countries. Yet according to several studies, Iran and Afghanistan are two of the countries in the world where Christianity is growing fastest. A recent article from the Gospel Coalition called Iran the world's fastest growing evangelical movement. And that article goes on to quote a missiologist who lives in the Middle East as saying, according to a source who lives in the area, about 20 years ago, the number of Christian converts from Muslim backgrounds was between 5,000 and 10,000 people. Today, that's between 800,000 to 1 million people. That's massive growth. The eighth hardest place to be a Christian in the world is home to the world's fastest growing evangelical movement. In Paul's day, the early church grew at a rapid pace despite intense persecution from Rome. And in today's world, the places where the church is heavily persecuted are the places where the church is growing fastest. If I point, there's a lot of Christians who spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money to get Christian values and support of the church codified into U.S. law. In other words, there's, there's a lot of time and energy and money spent trying to push the United States further right on that graph. But if we're going to be like Paul, we're going to take seriously the command to advance the gospel, we're going to rejoice in the, the gospel advancing, then maybe, just maybe, we need to care a little bit less about the government reflecting our values. And you care a little bit less about the government protecting us from persecution. And a lot more about sharing the gospel with our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers. 
In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no if, there's no might, will. If that's true, then avoiding persecution probably shouldn't be our highest priority. I say that, no, like, persecution is not pleasant. We should not seek out persecution for persecution's sake. But it is to say that those of us who are truly committed to the life that Jesus called us to live, if we're committed to that life, we're committed to being like Jesus, and our deepest desires will not be protection from persecution, will not be our own comfort, our own security. If we're committed to the life that Jesus called us to live, then our deepest desire will be to become like Christ and to advance the gospel. That may come along with persecution, but if our deepest desire to see the gospel advance, then we can rejoice even in the persecution like Paul. That's the first of Paul's circumstances that that serve to exalt Christ, that he's in jail. And him being in jail has encouraged others to share the gospel. The second circumstance that's causing Paul trouble, that could lead Paul into despair, is that others are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. They're intentionally stirring up trouble for Paul. Paul says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble while I, for me, while I am in chains. There's this group that's preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, that are doing so to stir up trouble for Paul while he's in chains. And we don't know exactly what the situation was that, that caused these preachers to call, cause trouble for Paul. We don't know why they're out to get Paul. We don't know how their preaching would cause trouble for Paul. But one thing that we do need to note is that these preachers are not preaching a false gospel. They're preaching Christ. They're preaching a true gospel. When Paul encounters false teachers preaching false gospels, he condemns them in the strongest possible terms. But Paul here does not say anything condemning about them. All he says is, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So these... These false teachers are preaching Christ. They're preaching the genuine gospel. But they're doing it from false motives. This week I started to think of like ways that this has played itself out in the modern church. I just started thinking about all the all the pastors, all the church leaders who have failed morally in various years. In addition to Tim Keller, one of the one of the people who influenced me a lot early on in my Christian faith was, was Mark Driscoll. If you 
heard the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. He had some serious moral failings. He seems to have done many things out of what Paul calls selfish ambition. Or many of you have been helped and formed by the, by the ministry and work of Ravi Zacharias, who also had serious moral failings. For a while, with Driscoll especially, I like debated, like, does his fall kind of tarnish what I learned from him? But we see here that like, the personal failings of these leaders does not negate the work, of, the work that God has done through their teachings, through their ministry, in the lives of believers. That doesn't excuse or justify their behavior in any way. But we can still, like Paul, rejoice that, that Christ was preached through them. We can mourn for the hurt they caused. Or we, can, we can condemn their behavior and still rejoice that they preached Christ and people came to know Jesus and love Jesus more deeply through their ministry. In Paul's day, these, these rival preachers were preaching intentionally with the desire to stir up trouble for Paul. They wanted to give Paul a bad name. They wanted to show that they were better than Paul. And it would have been so easy for Paul to want to get back at them, to want to defend himself, to want to justify himself, to show that he was better than them. And if Paul's deepest desire had been a good reputation, Paul's deepest desire had been to exalt himself or to make sure he was liked, then this circumstance would have been terrible for Paul. But Paul's deepest desire was not his reputation. It was not his social status. Paul's deepest value was not his own pride. And so it didn't devastate Paul to know that this was happening. For Paul, since his deepest desire was to exalt Christ and advance the gospel, that he can react to his circumstance not with despair, not with anger at being unjustly maligned, but he can react with rejoicing because Christ is being preached. The important thing that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. From a prison cell, as rivals intentionally caused him trouble, Paul says, I rejoice. And again, none of this makes light of the circumstance that Paul finds himself in. I'm sure Paul is not enjoying the discomfort of being in prison. It doesn't mean that Paul doesn't feel emotional pain that, as others seek to malign him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes of being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Those two things, sorrow and rejoicing, can coexist. And I imagine that's what's happening here. I'm sure Paul has some sorrow over his imprisonment. He has sorrow over those who seek to, to cause him trouble. 
He has sorrow over the brokenness and fallenness of the world around him. And yet, he can rejoice. He can rejoice because Christ is being exalted and the gospel is being preached. There's much for us to learn from Paul here. Any of you right now are facing difficult circumstances. And if you're not right now, then the broken nature of this world means that you will one day soon. But when those circumstances come, we can learn from Paul. We can look and we can see how God may be using our difficult circumstances to exalt Christ and to advance the gospel. If you're in a hard season right now, then I'm, I'm truly sorry for what you're going through. I don't want to make light of it. I'm going to be here to support you and pray for you and be with you through that hardship. I don't want to make it seem trivial or light. But I do want to invite you to look to Paul and to see that God is at work even in your hardest circumstance. I mentioned Tim Keller and his passing earlier. And this week after I heard that Tim Keller had passed, I went back and I read an article he wrote for The Atlantic about a year ago when he was reflecting on his cancer and the reality that he knew that death was coming soon for him. And he wrote this. I can sincerely say, without any sentimentality or exaggeration, that I've never been happier in my life that I've never had more days filled with comfort. But it is equally true that I've never had so many days of grief. One of our dearest friends lost her husband to cancer six years ago, and even now, she says, she might seem fine, and then out of nowhere, some reminder or thought will swipe her and cripple her with sorrow. Yes but I have come to be grateful for those side swipes because they remind me to reorient myself to the convictions of my head and the processes of my heart. When I take time to remember how to deal with my fears and savor my joys, the constellations are stronger and sweeter than ever. He's saying like, the moments of grief remind him to reorient his, reorient his head and his heart toward Christ. You may hear that. You may wonder, like, that sounds great, but like, I'm not there. How do I get there? Where do I hug my heart to that place? And answering that question, I find, I find helpful the words of another pastor who has battled cancer. That's in this case, Matt Chandler. In his book, To Live as Christ and Die as Gain, which is a reflection on the book of Philippians that he wrote after being diagnosed with cancer, he writes this. And I quote it in your bulletin. I'd invite you to follow along if you want. He writes this. 
from Paul's perspective, in light of the gospel, everything must serve the purpose of the glory of Christ. So it isn't therefore a tragedy that Paul's in prison, being persecuted within or unjustly maligned without. No, it is a privilege. Paul considered that a blessing to be considered worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. And here is the key sentence. This is not the kind of Christianity that any of us end up with except through a profound experiencing of Christ's cross applied to our lives. Let's read that last sentence again. This is not the kind of Christianity that any of us end up with, except through a profound experiencing of Christ's cross applied to our lives. If you want to see your desires and your values change, so that your deepest desire becomes the exaltation of Christ and the advancement of His gospel, the place we need to start is with our own hearts, our own lives. We need to see Jesus as worthy of exaltation. We need to see the glory and the beauty of the gospel, how it transcends the cares of this earth. We need to look to Christ and see Him who gave up the glories of heaven and came and lived among us. To live and be like us in every way, but never sin. To see Jesus who endured the cross, who endured suffering and pain and ultimately death on a cross, also that our sins can be forgiven. We need to look at that Jesus and see like there is nothing greater than He. He would love us enough to come for us and die for us so that our sins can be forgiven. Who looked down at us and saw that in our sin we had broken our relationship with God. The only way for us to be restored to God, for Him to come and live and die for us. He came. He lived a sinless life and then He went to the cross and He died the death that we deserve to die. Out of His deep love for us. Then he was buried. And then on the third day, he overcame and he defeated death as a promise that one day for all of those who trust in him, their bodies will be raised to new life and we will live forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no more pain or suffering or imprisonment or being mocked by rivals or sickness or death. We need to look at Jesus, remind ourselves of all He's done, and be in awe of Him. Our hearts need to be moved and transfixed by His greatness and His glory. 
You need to see the gospel as precious and worthy of being shared with others. We need to feel that the others around us need this gospel because without it, they're doomed for eternity with their relationship with God broken. We need to know that not just in our heads, but feel it in our hearts to be like Paul and to say to live is Christ. All else pales in comparison. We want to get to a place where we can rejoice in our own personal trials. We need, as Chandler said, a profound experience of Christ's cross applied to our lives. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, you need that first. You need to trust Jesus. You turn to Him. There's no redeeming qualities of suffering apart from Christ. There's no hope apart from Christ. So if you've never trusted Jesus, then trust Him. For those of us who are here who have trusted Jesus, we still need the same thing. We need to remind ourselves to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. To constantly, without end, remind ourselves that Jesus died for us. We need to constantly see Christ as of supreme value and worth. To see Jesus as far greater than our own comfort, our own security, our own well-being. The only way that happens is if we constantly come to Him through His Word and through prayer and remind ourselves of His goodness and His love for us. I desire for us that we be people like Paul who can say to live as Christ, to die as gain, who can say, I rejoice even in my own suffering, because I know that the gospel is being advanced and Christ is being exalted. We be that kind of people. We get there by constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel. Father God, we are amazed by your goodness to us. We stand in awe of your glory. We stand in awe that you would send your Son to die for us while we were your enemies.
love us in our sin when there was nothing lovable in us. come to us in Jesus. And Father, I pray that those truths would not just be something we acknowledge in our head as true, but something we feel in the depths of our soul as meaningful and significant and transforming to us. Father, would you work even now to apply the truths of the gospel to each of our heart in deep and fresh ways. We walk out of here this morning with a deeper appreciation than ever before of who Christ is and what you've done for us through Christ's death and resurrection. Father, would we, as we see Christ, as we marvel at his goodness, would it motivate us, would it compel us, would it reorient our values and our desires so that the thing we value most deeply to know Christ, to exalt Christ, and to see the gospel of Christ advance. We want nothing more than to see Christ glorified as we spread the good news of all he's done to others around us who don't know him. Father, would you shape us, would you mold us more and more into the image of your Son? Would you help us to set aside our personal cares, our personal desires, all for the sake of your kingdom and your glory? Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen. On this service, I invite you downstairs to have a, a snack, have a treat, fellowship together. At 10.30, Children's Sunday School will start downstairs. At 10.45, we'll start a sermon discussion here in this room. We invite you to be a part of that. And at 11.30, after Children's Sunday School gets out, we will start setting up for the rummage sale. But as you leave this morning... Would you go marveling at the glory of Christ? And would it spur you to desire to exalt Him and see His kingdom advance? You are dismissed.